thank you for listening to our AUA University podcast. Today, I would like to introduce you to the first in a four-part series, Emerging Immunotherapeutic Agents for the Treatment of Bladder Cancer. This series is hosted by Dr. Roberts Vatek, Associate Professor of Urology at UT Health Science Center in San Antonio. In today's episode, he is joined by Dr. Joshua Meeks, Assistant Professor of Urology and Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. Their discussion is entitled Immunotherapy from Research to Practice. We will now join Dr. Zvatek. Okay, welcome everyone. This is the Emerging Immunotherapeutic Agents webinar for the treatment of bladder cancer. This is um, our first webinar of the series. This one is titled Immunotherapy from Research to Practice. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so we are able to continuously improve our programs. Tonight, tonight's webinar will be presented to you by Dr. Josh Meeks, who is a urologic oncologist at Northwestern University. Dr. Meeks pioneered early genetic studies of reproductive endocrinology, contributing um, several major discoveries, including seminal work published in Nature Genetics on the function of DAX1 gene and testes differentiation. Dr. Meeks now specializes in the surgical treatment of non-muscle and muscle-invasive bladder cancer. He runs a, a busy clinical service and runs a basic science laboratory focused on genetic and epigenetic determinants of bladder cancer, as well as novel cancer immunotherapeutics. I would invite anyone listening who has not read it yet to look at his recent Nature Review article on the evolving genomic landscape in bladder cancer. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this, this internet live activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA category one credit. The evaluations are very important to us. In the next few days, you will receive an email requesting that you complete an online evaluation. Upon completion of the evaluation, you have an opportunity to record your CME credit. Please complete the evaluation and claim your, your CME credit. All persons in the position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any financial relationships with any commercial interest. The AUA disclosure policy, Education Council, discloses and faculty disclosures are listed here and can be found in the online syllabus. The AUA would like to thank the following companies for providing educational grants in support of this webinar, listed below. Thank you. At this time, I'd like to have Josh Meeks um, take over. Hey, Rob, and uh, thank you again for the opportunity to participate in this webinar. I, I also wanted to thank the AUA for this opportunity, as well as our sponsors that are sponsoring our webinar today. So our goal today is really to look at the interaction of the immune system and how it interacts with cancer. And, you know, I, I think many of us learned about immunology and, and, the, and the immune response and how the, the immune system interacts with pathogens, as we've had you know, decades and decades of uh, educational material and, and knowledge on that. And really, our interest in how the immune system interacts with cancer is really a relatively new development in an ongoing field that is incredibly exciting. Uh, 
Regardless of what tumor type we're talking about, and obviously today we're focusing on bladder cancer, some of the hallmarks of cancer are how it interacts with the immune system. And this is a slide that was uh, first described by Hanahan and Weinberg uh, in the review of the hallmarks of cancer. And clearly how the tumor interacts with the immune system is a critical interaction that's important for the tumor to both set up shop and as well as progress. Now, there are many types of cells, and we're going back to the basics here just for a minute, many types of cells that are involved in the immune response. And I think the three most important that we're going to talk about today are the macrophages, the neutrophils, and the lymphocytes. Now, the macrophages are some of the first responders to the to the tumor, and macrophage is Greek for big eater because it's involved in gobbling up the new antigens involved in the tumor, and which is part of recognizing what is self and not self. Immediately after the macrophages are the neutrophils, and those I would consider to be the immediate responders that are really responsible for generating an immune response. Finally, the lymphocytes are part of the uh, memory response and really part of the adaptive immune system and the major lymphocytes that we'll talk about. And that's really where the innovation has come in the last few years is in managing the activation of the lymphocytes. Those are T cells, both CD4 and CD8, as well as the B cells. Now, broadly, there's two forms of immune response. There's an innate response and adaptive response. And just to go through the brushstrokes for that, the innate response is a rapid response that recognizes patterns that involves a quick response of cytokines and co-stimulatory molecules. It is directed at the host and mostly involves in phagocytosis or in engulfing what's considered foreign. The major cell types involved in that are macrophages, dendritic cells, NK cells, and granulocytes. Now, the adaptive response is much slower, and that's a because it involves gene rearrangement and clonal expansion. Those are T cells and B cells that are driving that. And the good news is that has, there's a memory to that, so that you know, once that immune response begins and it recurs again, there's a very quick, it's very quick to get restarted and you get clonal expansion. Those cells are lymphocytes, B cells, T cells, and NK cells. So once again, two types of response, an innate response that comes up automatically, and then an adaptive response that's slower and more engineered, but likely going to have a greater long-term response. I think you're on mute there, Rob. Sorry, thanks. Um, with immune therapy, we've seen durable responses, unlike we've seen in, in traditional chemotherapeutic responses. Um, is this due to this adaptive immune response, and is this why we think that we can sometimes have these long-term responses, for, for example, with PD-L1, PD-1 therapy? I think, I think so, Rob. And I, I, honestly, I think the, trying to figure out exactly uh, why some of our immunotherapies are so successful and why some have a long-term response and others don't is, is going to be kind of the next phase of, of the biology is trying to figure out exactly why some some people are long-term responders and can respond for years. If you look at, for example, some of the lung and melanoma trials, and now we have some data on the bladder trials as well, that people who respond can respond for a long time, and some of them may even be able to come off therapy long-term. So I, I, my guess is, yes, that it's it's that the T-cell response that we're really able to, to engineer and to, to keep, and we'll talk about some of those molecules in the next few slides. 
So uh, probably the, one of the most important processes that we're going to talk about today at the fundamental level is this concept of immunosurveillance. And very similar to how pathogens can be considered, you know, foreign, tumor cells at some point due to mutations in genes that are expressed on the cell can also be considered foreign or highly immunogenic. And that's depicted here by the, um, by these sort of light blue cells that are more immunogenic than some of the dark blue cells. And that does generate an immune response. And so many of those cells, when they're considered abnormal, the immune system is able to eliminate those. And tumors that express that we think are eliminated and, and potentially the patient isn't, isn't symptomatic at all. But over time, if the tumor's persistent, a process known as immunoediting occurs. And when that occurs, the highly immunogenic cells are removed and the poorly, and you're left with the poorly immunogenic cells. Well, when those cells are present over time, that does lead to a certain degree of immunosuppression, which is sort of this third stage. So we have elimination, we have an equilibrium that's developed, and that ultimately results in escape, largely due to immunosuppression. So even though that there are T cells there, those T cells, instead of being effector T cells, develop what's called energy, so they're not really effective T cells. And then there's even, you know, T regulatory cells, which are involved in turning down the T cell response. So going back to this whole process of immunosurveillance and why we think this is occurring with cancer is that cells that aren't eliminated develop an equilibrium and then escape, and then that's the, the tumor that ends up developing and develops a sort of stromal response that is largely protective from the immune system. Now, what's changed in the last few years is not that we have new therapies in the form of newly engineered therapies. And so many people were waiting for these technologies to come on board, tumor vaccines, engineering, and, and really trying to get cytokines that boost the immune response. And while these are important and we're still working on that, I think really the breakthroughs in immunotherapy over the past, you know, four years really are a better understanding of the pathways involved in the immune response and how we can utilize those pathways to inhibit anti-tumor immunity. And so the two pathways that we're really going to talk about today, and I'd really like us to cover and under, for you to understand very well, are the PD-1 and CTLA-4 pathways and how they're involved in suppressing T cell activity. So when you look at the T cell, there are many co-stimulatory uh, molecules that are on the T cell. And so if you look at the left side here, these are involved in T cell activation. So that's CD28, OX40, Gitter ligand. Those are all expressed in, on the T cell and are involved in activation. Alternatively, there's a whole other set of molecules that are involved in turning the T cell off. And you can imagine that the activation as well as the suppression of T cell activity go hand in hand. That if you have too much activation, which is what we, we think we want for tumors, that can also be bad, for example, for a pathogen response. That's what leads to autoimmunity. We think to diabetes, to forms of colitis, to 
you know, uh, to different forms of autoimmune syndromes. And so the ability to turn off the immune system is critical. And the, the molecules that are involved in that are all listed in the right there. So those are CTLA-4, PD-1, TIM-3, LAG-3. And so if you're thinking about how you want to engineer an immune response for, for tumor biology, there's a couple things you'd like to do. One way to do would be to go about activating the T cell. And so you would, if that's the case, you would want agonistic antibodies to activate those immune responses. So, for example, if you could ha have a, a molecule that will activate CD28, if you have a molecule that can, an antibody that can activate OX40, that is going to get you a better T cell response. Another way of looking at it, and that's largely what we're going to talk about today, is developing inhibitory or blocking antibodies to block CTLA-4, to block PD-1. Uh, in the pipeline of many pharmaceuticals are anti antibodies to block TIM-3 and LAG-3. I think we're going to see more of those. So just thinking of the paradigm of T-cell biology, that's really where the breakthroughs have come uh, for our therapeutics, and we're going to talk a little more about that today. So then once again, the two ma major, and these are called checkpoints, the two major checkpoint inhibitor pathways we're going to discuss today are the CTLA-4 pathway and the PD-1 pathway. And the first one we're going to talk about is CTLA-4. So this is a cartoon that's describing sort of the circle of antigen activation in tumors and immune response. And so that all starts here. Cancer cells that are dividing express these new antigens or neoantigens, and many of those are from breakdown of actively dividing uh, tumor cells. That leads to, those are often ingested once again by antigen-presenting cells, and those molecules are expressed on them, and they traffic all the way to the lymph node. At the lymph node, those antigen-presenting cells that are now primed by those neoantigens go there, mix with T cells, and activate the T cells. Once the T cells are active, they then hone their way back through the blood supply all the way to the, the barrier where the uh, cytotoxic T cells enter the tumor bed, and then they go and recognize the tumor. And that's really an interaction between the MHCs that are expressed on the the tumor cell and the T cell receptor. Once that binding occurs, the T cells are activated and you get sort of killing of the cancer cells, which therefore leads to further um, killing of the tumor and then uh, more molecules are, are released, which once again adapts a further immune response. Well, in a successful environment, the tumor is, you know, goes away, but we know that just as we're activating the immune response, the immune system just as quickly wants to turn that off because, once again, if you have too much activation of the immune system, that leads to autoimmunity. And that's really, once again, where these molecules are playing a role. And so, Josh, looking at this uh, diagram, mm -hmm. it seems to me that, you know, in addition to looking at T cell biology and how to stimulate the T cell, that there are other areas that a potential ways that we could alter the activity, for example, improving antigen presentation or improving mm -hmm. the trafficking of the cells to the tumor. And uh, I, I, I would think that these may also have a role in, in, in improving the response as well based on this diagram. Oh, you, you couldn't be more right, Rob. And, you know, for the folks that are tuned are interested in this, I mean, I, I think, you know, this is really where the exciting biology is going on. And I, I really think that, you know, we've you look at how far, how much innovation we've developed really just with two 
molecules, you can imagine that the, the more we know this, the better we understand it, the better potential therapies we have for our, our patients. So I, I agree with you exactly, Rob, that, you know, the better we understand this, the, the more we can leverage it to treat our patients and, and potentially improve our survival. So we're going to talk about CTLA-4 first, and I'm going to highlight the area here with an arrow. Where this is occurring, and I think this is an important thing to note, is that the interaction we think between T cells and antigen-presenting cells is occurring in the lymph node. And when the T cell and antigen-presenting cell kind of come together, the first thing that happens is that that antigen-presenting cell, remember, is expressing the, the neoantigen from the tumor on an MHC. And when that occurs, you know, this is a very small peptide, literally a nine amino acid. And then when the T cell receptor binds that, it activates the T cell receptor. Now, a critical point for that interaction is that the co-stimulatory molecule CD28 is present, and it binds either CD80 and CD86. And I know that's a lot of detail, but the key thing is, these co-stimulatory interactions must occur. That CD28 interaction with CD18 and 86 are critical interactions. If those don't occur, that T cell is shut down. So when everything is present, once again, another check and balance between the immune system. When CD28 binds CD86 and CD80, that together with the T cell causes T cell proliferation as well as activation. Now, CTLA-4 comes into this mix because when the immune system is trying to shut down that immune response, CTLA-4 can compete for the co-stimulation. So you can see CTLA-4 binds both CD80, CD86, and can out-compete CD28. So then CD28 is not active anymore, and CTLA-4 sort of shuts down that immune response. Once again, the immune system is trying to keep everything in check. Now, you can imagine in the setting of a pathogen, when it goes away, that's good. But in the setting of a tumor, for example, a persistent tumor, as we talked about, that's developed, you know, that equilibrium and has set up shop, you really you want to reactivate that immune response. And that's really where our anti-CTLA-4 antibodies are coming in. Those block the function of CTLA-4. They release CD80 and CD86 to go bind CD28 to further, again, reactivate an immune response. So that this T cell can then go on and uh, enter back into this pathway and go to stimulate, uh, go to the uh, the periphery. So then it can go from here forward. All right. Now the other system that we need to talk about today is the PD1 PDL1 pathway, and that's occurring at a, at a different spot we think than the CTLA4 pathway. So PD-1 and PD-L1 is not occurring in the lymph node, we don't believe. We think the majority of the interaction is occurring between the T cell and the tumor cell and the tumor environment, which is at a, at a different pace. So I've shown a cartoon of this here, and this is the tumor on the bottom and the T cell on top. And so the major interaction, once again, is that the T cell, which is active, is binding to the tumor which is expressing, once again, that little, and I've shown this as a gray box here, the, the, tumor, the tumor neoantigen. And that is recognized by the T cell, which then results in interferon production and T cell activation. Over time, what happens is that the tumor is smart and can avoid this, and it, it learns to 
upregulate PDL ligand or PDL1. PDL1 then binds PD1 on the T cell, and that turns off the T cell response. This ultimately results in what's called T cell exhaustion, which is literally what happens when the T cell is sitting in the periphery, it's right next to the tumor, and it can be there, but it's really not doing anything. So the way that um, PD, anti-PD-L1 therapy works is that that's an inhibitory antibody that binds PD-L1. It blocks the interaction between PD-L1 and PD-1, which then releases that checkpoint and allows further activation of the T cell. Once the T cell is active, it can then go on further and clear the tumor. So, you know, once again, many people kind of ask the question about how do PD-L1 antibodies work? And I'll be honest when I say that I don't think we all know 100% how they work, but the three major theories are they result in activation of T cells that promotes T cell both mobility and, and interaction between the T cell and, and antigen-presenting cell. Number two, that the T cells that are in the periphery that are exhausted, it reactivates them so that these CD8 cells can then become further, have further activity. And then finally, those T regulatory cells, which we really haven't touched on, but I think are going to be critical in the future, we think that the PDL1 blocks the activity of the T regs so that the CD8 cells can then once again fully function. Yeah, I just want to make a comment here because I think this is a great point. Um, as we're starting to understand the biology, you'll see these really very interesting science coming out of these uh, the, the biology here and people looking at how PDL1 expression on both tumor and other immune cells such as macrophages can regulate the activity of these antibodies. So I, I do think that we're just looking at the tip of the iceberg in terms of exactly what's, what, what is happening at the cellular level, level for these uh, antibodies. So, Josh, um, why does bladder cancer respond to immunotherapy? Why specifically bladder? Um, and, and why such an interest in bladder from among the, um, the drug companies that are making these, these antibodies? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think um, when you sort of start, when you take a step back, obviously as, as urologists, bladder makes sense to us. But I think there's a reason why urologists have been giving BCG, which is an immunotherapy, for over 40 years. And as surgeons, we're probably the only surgical specialty that has consistently been giving immunotherapy to our patients for a very long time. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's such an immunogenic tumor. And we think the basis for that, at a literally at a mutation level, comes down to the fact that it, there's a very high neoantigen burden, which means that, that bladder cancer has a very high mutation rate. This data is from the Cancer Genome Atlas, and tumors are listed here, starting at rhabdoid tumors, which has a relatively low tumor mutation load. And once again, looking at this, this is a, in a logarithmic scale. So these are rhabdoid tumors at one end, which are a low mutation burden. On the far other side are, is melanoma, lung cancer, and then there's bladder cancer right there. And so it's not surprising that, you know, all of the tumors that have a strong response to immunotherapy are listed at the high mutation burden. And once again, what we think is going on is that the number of mutations 
that occur in a tumor are being expressed on the cell surface of that tumor, and that's causing the activation of the immune response. So all the tumors that are listed in blue, and of course, obviously, bladder cancer, that we think the basis for what's driving that immune response at a fundamental level has to do with that mutation burden. So, hey Josh, just taking a, a question from the audience. Um, because CIS tends to be responsive to immunotherapy, does that mean that CIS has more mutations? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, first of all, that's an unanswered question in our field, Rob. And I think that um, we would love to know more about that. But the only uh, really correlative that I can give you for that um, comes from some of our work where we've sequenced patients that are T1 high grade. And, you know, the, the reason why we, we're sort of a little bit limited at this point to what we know at the genetic level is that the Cancer Genome Atlas has largely focused on muscle-invasive tumors, which obviously are stage T2 and, and greater. We sequenced T1 tumors, and we found that when we compared the patients who responded to BCG versus those that didn't respond to BCG, there was a big difference in the mutation load. And so, for example, the median mutation load in patients in the TCGA is anywhere from five to seven mutations per megabase. The BCG responsive tumors were as high as 15 mutations per megabase, and the non-responsive tumors were closer to 10. And then metastatic tumors we put in as a comparison were about five. So they're even less, had a lower mutation burden than the, um, than the, T, the T2 uh, TCGA tumors. So I think this concept of mutation burden, which has kind of been shown in other tumors, is going to ultimately likely play a role as a prognostic sign in, uh, in bladder cancer. You know, this is some of the data that sort of goes further to show that. This is work from Billy Kim's group. In, in the first graph here, this is comparing the total muta mutation burden to the neoantigen burden. And once again, that, the differences between a mutation and a neoantigen is that not all mutations are expressed and that not all mutations cause a change in the protein. But there, there's obviously a direct correlation. The more mutations you have, the more likely these are going to be you know, neoantigens. Now, it's interesting. There's a lot of work being done on the different subtypes of tumor. Uh, I know there's a lot of folks working on that, but the three kind of basic types of tumors, basal, luminal, and clod and low, there's no interest difference in the neoantigen burden between these three types, even though there's a very different immune response. But regardless of subtype, when you look at survival, and that's what's shown here in this Kaplan-Meier curve, is that tumors that have a high mutation burden or a high neoantigen load have a much better survival than patients that have a lower neoantigen burden. And, and that, you know, that's pretty common across tumor types. So this is uh, two different studies. The one on the left is looking at melanoma and patients treated with ipilimumab, which is a CTLA-4 inhibitor. On the right is a lung cancer trial and patients treated with a PD-1 inhibitor. And what these two graphs have in common, these two Kaplan-Meierkers have in common is that when you look at patients who have a better response in both treatments, those are patients that uh, have a higher mutation load. So once again, the thought is that higher mutation load leads to higher neoantigens, higher response by the immune system. And, you know, the, I think the question that many folks have is, why is it, for example, that the immune system can't get rid of these? And once again, it, no one really knows. We think maybe that these are less immunogenic, but it's the, the checkpoint inhibitors 
that unmask these neoantigens and really allows the immune response to go after them again and really finish a job that maybe they couldn't complete the first time because of the checkpoints. Yeah, and so Josh, another question here from the from the uh, audience. So, is there a way to increase neoantigen burden on tumors to facilitate immune response to tumors that, let's say, have uh, low burden or low, low survival? You know, it's a great question. You know, I think there's a lot of ways that you can go about increasing the tumor mutation burden. So we know that um, when you <laughs> We know that when you go and um, give something like chemotherapy, you in increase the uh, immune response. We know that uh, when you uh, give radiation, you increase the immune response. And, and there's other drugs. For example, there are medications and, you know, that block ATM. There's drugs that block PARP. And all of those increase the DNA damage amount that occurs in a tumor and likely will increase the, the immune response. You know, it seems to me just, you know, going back to your original slide on um, the elimination, which, which is then followed by equilibrium and then escape, that, you know, I, I just wonder how much of this is just when we're finding the tumor. So if you find a tumor early, then you would expect it to have higher mutation rate. The neoantigen burden is higher, whereas as time goes on, the tumor uh, develops uh, a, a more it's a more immunosuppressed and develops a more specific and kind of um, less of a mutation burden. And so I, I just wonder how much of this is just the timing of when a tumor is found uh, in relationship to, to its development. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we know that when you when you look at why people don't respond to PD-1, uh, so the, those tumors that um, uh, that uh, become PD-1 resistant or CTLA-4 resistant, there's a number of escape mechanisms. One of them is that they drop the mutation load. Another one is that they have uh, copy number loss of, of things that, um, you know, once again, that are in, involved in the immune response. So I, I think that you're, you have a good point, Rob, that maybe, you know, one of those escape mechanisms are you start becoming uh, less immunogenic, so that's a great point, you know, that the landscape is when, when you find it, very possible. Okay. So to, to answer your question, Rob, about why bladder cancer and why immunotherapy and why it has such a good response, I would really try and summarize that with three main features of bladder cancer. First, number one, the high mutation burden that's found, or in high neoantigen burden in bladder cancer relative to other tumors. Number two is that many tumors are immune infiltrated, quote unquote, hot tumors. Uh, unlike other cancers, for example, prostate cancer that has a relatively low immune infiltrate, most bladder tumors already have an immune response present. And then I would say the third part is that we know that these tumors already have some checkpoint involvement, and they're, even though the T cells are there, they're not functioning, which really puts them really at the point where an a checkpoint inhibitor is really ready to go to activate an immune response. So you have a high new engine burden that results in immune infiltration and some immune regulation that we can then uh, address with immunotherapy. So, Josh, what are the current uh, indications for 
checkpoint inhibitors in bladder cancer. Yeah, you know, I'd say that when we made this slide, and it's not like, you know, we made this a year ago, um, really there was two indications, and there was, you know, at this point still only two drugs approved. Um, atizolizumab was approved in May of 2016 and nivolumab in February of 2017. They were both approved originally for locally advanced or metastatic urethelial carcinoma that had progressed following or during cisplatin-based chemotherapy or patients who had progressed within 12 months of neoadjuvant or adjuvant platinum therapy. So these are people who are platinum refractory. Just as of literally the last week, we found atizolizumab approved for cisplatinum-ineligible patients. And so for those who can't get platinum, which we know is largely what's responsible for improving survival for people that have systemic disease, now they have the opportunity to receive atizolizumab that are cisplatinum-ineligible. I think that's going to be a, a, big, a big group of patients. Yeah, I, I, I want to, you know, emphasize the, the importance of this. Um, I was just taking care of a patient who um, was also being taken care of by Arlene uh, Sipkaratke in, in Houston, and we were just discussing therapy. This patient was cisplatin ineligible, um, but we couldn't give anti-PD-L1 therapy because at that time, just a month ago, it wasn't approved, and the only way to get around that is to pay for it out of pocket. And, mm. and so this really opens up a lot of uh, opportunities for these patients. So it's, it's really an exciting time to be in bladder cancer because of these just fast-moving pace. You know, one, one webinar, we, we, we have two drug, two approval processes. The next one, we have a third. It's just, it's just a really exciting time for us. Josh, uh, can't – oh, go ahead. You know, and the, and the real question is, what, you know, what role will they play with, with chemotherapy? You know, we know that it's, it's already the, you know, I, I think good chance that it's going to be the best, you know, second line. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, where it's going to stop, what, what are the interactions that we're going to do as far as uh, immunotherapy plus what, what drug combination. Um, it's really, you know, for us treating patients incredibly exciting. But I also think that it's going to be great for our patients. You know, hopefully that survival curve, which has not changed, hopefully that's going to move. Okay, so on a related uh, topic, what, what is the role of the urologist in this fast-moving train, and are we going to participate in this um, era of, of checkpoint inhibitors? You know, that's a, that's a great question, Rob. I, I think that really is going to depend on the individual urologist. So, um, you know, very similar to how there are some urologists whose entire practice manages patients with advanced prostate cancer, I think there are certainly going to be those who are involved in immunotherapy. And that's going to be involved in giving systemic immunotherapy. And, you know, there's also going to be folks who say that's, you know, not something I really want to do. You know, I'm not, I don't really want to manage the grade three and four complications, the, the pneumonitis, the, car, you know, cardiomyositis, you know, I'm not going to be involved in that. But I think that, you know, for those, as, as we see these patients, as they become more mainstream, as the, we know the side effects and how to better manage them, I certainly think that there are urologists that are going to be involved in that. Now, alternatively, you, you don't have to be the one who's 
putting it, doing an infusion to be involved in these trials. So uh, what you're looking at now is a, a schema for SWOG 1605. This is uh, a trial uh, from Peter Black and Parminder Singh through SWOG, and it's a trial giving atezolizumab to patients that are BCG refractory for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And as you can see, they're getting atezo every three weeks, and the urologist is going to play a major role in this trial. You know, obviously they're going to be involved in recruitment because they're the ones who are managing the patient primarily. They're going to be involved in cystoscopy and the and, and cytologies and really evaluating if the therapy works. And so, you know, this is a real opportunity for for urologists that want to be involved in immunotherapy, this is your chance to, first of all, see your patients going through these trials. And second, you can imagine if, if there's a medical oncologist you work with, this is a great opportunity to pair up with them and really be involved in the care of these patients as they're going through these trials. And so, you know, you can imagine if the patient is having any problems as they're going through this, you know, that's really an opportunity for you to see if this is something that you really want to be involved with. Josh, I want to take some questions here from the audience. Um, mm -hmm. Back to what we were discussing before. Um, is renal function, uh, um, does it preclude, if, if renal function precludes cisplatin treatment, can we go straight to anti-PD-L1 therapy? Um, and along those lines, is uh, PD-L1 therapy dosed based on renal function? You know, uh, so It'd be interesting to see the, what our med colleagues would say to that. I know that um, I, I think at this point many of the drugs are not based on weight. They're flat doses. Um, I know that I've had multiple patients that have been, you know, had perks in and creatinines are around four from their, you know, long obstruction from bladder cancer. And, you know, these are people who are out now over a year doing outstanding. So, I don't, as far as I know, I don't believe that, are, that renal failure is in any way precludes them from, from getting treatment. Has that been your experience, Rob? I, I agree. Um, now, I have, we have had a patient that developed acute renal insufficiency during um, PD-L1 therapy, and we, we weren't exactly sure uh, whether it was drug-dependent. The patient was taken off of therapy, uh, placed on steroids, um, creatinine improved, was started back on uh, anti-PD-L1 therapy. So uh, I, 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 I agree with you. Um, now, the other question is, you know, can you start it as first-line therapy? And, yeah, so now it is, you know, uh, it was just as of April 17th was approved. Now, this is for metastatic or locally advanced bladder cancer it is approved for first-line therapy and people that are cisplatin ineligible. Mm -hmm. That said, I, I think this is, um, you, you know, there still is a role for chemotherapy, and totally. this, these types of things need to have discussion with the medical oncologist. But, but don't you think, I mean, we're getting to the point where, and, and obviously none of this is um, based on prospective trials, but we're getting to the point where we're, we're learning more about bladder cancer. We're learning about which tumor types are most responsive and, you know, for example, we've seen that basal tumors tend to respond better to chemo and, or, and they, patients do, it, change, it greatly changes the survival to them. And so I, my guess is there'll be certain immune infiltrated tumors that we'll potentially be giving immunotherapy to in the future, uh, and there's others that we'll be giving chemotherapy to. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the patient-specific or patient-directed 
um, therapy is is all the more important in this in this this era where we have both chemotherapy and immune therapy as options. We really can look to uh, a, a very specific type of regimen for each patient. Uh, another question: um, Are there any intravesical immunotherapies for BCG refractory, or, or as we say now, BCG unresponsive cancer in trials now? And this one that Josh is showing is has just been activated. Um, there are there's another trial of uh, an adenovirus-mediated interferon production, uh, ad interferon made by FKD, FKD therapies that is currently in trials. Um, Josh, any, any other intravesical immune therapy? And I know you're working on, on that as well. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to say that um, I, I appreciate that question. We, so we came up with this concept over two, you know, two to three years ago of, you know, why can't we deliver anti-PD-01 therapy uh, into the bladder as urologists? Because, you know, the bladder is available to us. We use it all the time. And so we have a phase one trial with Merck um, giving pembrolizumab with BCG. And, and the thought here really is that in BCG refractory patients, you know, BCG has set up this sort of immune privileged environment that if you could turn that off by giving PDL1 directly into the bladder, you could potentially al allow the PD1 to work. And so we have a trial where the patients get six weeks of combined BCG and PDL1. And then after that, they go on to maintenance therapy with anti PDL1, all of it given in the bladder. And uh, you know, we have patients already recruited to that trial. It opened about three weeks ago. Uh, we're excited about it, essentially because if we can give it in the bladder, I think we could avoid a lot of the systemic toxicities. And honestly, they're very well tolerated through the, you know, intravenously. But these are these are not metastatic patients that we're talking about. Um, these are patients that, you know, overall are usually ECOG zero. And so they do really well. And so the, the hope is that we could continue to give them immunotherapy into their bladder. So I think stay tuned. We're, we're excited and, and hope that we'll, you know, see some positive results. Awesome. So let's go to the next uh, slide, Zeke. Um, Josh, does the tumor need to express PD-L1 to benefit from PD-L1 therapy? And on those, on, along those lines, if I have a patient with, let's say, cisplatin ineligible and metastatic disease, do I need to get a biopsy and look for PD-L1 expression? You know, I, I think it's a really good question as far as what's the biomarker for trying to anticipate response. And, you know, as, as you know, Rob, those patients are, you know, many of them don't have the opportunity to go from drug A to drug B to drug C to drug D, especially the metastatic patients. So trying to pick the best therapy is the most important point. At this time, I really don't think we have a good biomarker for patients that we can take to the to the bank and say, you should get this therapy and not that therapy at this point. You know, originally in some of the work, a lot of the high-expressing PD-L1 tumors were the ones that responded, and the low-expressing ones did not. And I, if you really look at the last, like, Keynote 045 paper, um, Belmont's paper that was just published in New England Journal, if you look at the paper, interestingly, they really don't talk about pdl one expression. And in bladder, 
I think we're seeing something a little different than what's seen in lung and melanoma, where the best responders express high levels of PD-L1. In fact, if you look at you know Rosenberg's paper on the TZO responders, those were the type 2 TCGAs, which are not necessarily those that are expressed the highest levels of PD-L1. So uh, I, I don't think we know yet. This slide is a uh, pan-cancer data looking at tumor response. And so on the y-axis is overall response rate to treatment on the x-axis is mutation burden. And as you can see, there's a relatively linear response to patients that have a higher mutation burden. So once again, I, I, my theory is that you're going to see uh, mutation burden as a predictor of response. But I certainly don't think at this point that a biopsy um, that doesn't express PD-1 would be a reason to withhold PD-1 therapy for any patient. Josh, we have another question that came in. Um, do you anticipate a paradigm shift in timing of treatment, i.e. neoadjuvant versus adjuvant, in light of the recent cancer discovery article showing improved efficacy in the neoadjuvant versus adjuvant setting uh, by Lou et al.? Now, just um, to kind of summarize what, what they did is that um, they, they showed significantly greater therapeutic efficacy of neoadjuvant compared to adjuvant immune therapy in eradicating uh, distant metastasis in patients that already had primary tumor resection. Um, and it, it's certainly a provoking article. Um, I'll, Josh, I'll let you comment, and then I, I may have a couple of comments as well. You know, so that trial's underway, right? So we know that I think North Carolina is the major site for a neoadjuvant PDL1 trial. So we'll have the information. That trial, the cancer discovery paper, which was a breast tumor, was pretty provocative. It showed that you really need to give the neoadjuvant immunotherapy, and that the and that the mouse needed to have surgery. You couldn't leave, for example, the the tumor in place. So. You know, it's interesting whether uh, having some immunotherapy on board at the time of treatment uh, results in better, you know, and it acts as sort of as a neoantigen that's spread and, and you get a better response. I, you know, it will be a very interesting question to see um, to see long-term if that ends up being what we do in bladder cancer. Yeah. And I, th I think, you know, we, we've, I remember as these discussions were coming about, what, should we target neoadjuvant first or adjuvant? And we debated, well, in the neoadjuvant setting, the tumor's still there, so you actually have better T-cell repertoire with the actual antigens being present, whereas in the adjuvant setting, tumor's been removed, but then there's less burden of tumor. So it's all these kind of theoretical speculations about what would be better. This paper uh, in breast is an important, uh, you know, really scientific e examination of that. It's one model. Um, it doesn't necessarily apply to the other tumor types, but it's a, it's a start in the right direction of trying to understand these things. And I think the clinical uh, trials will still be required, as, as we know. So I, it's a really, really interesting kind of question. You know, I, once again, though, I, I think knowing the tumor type is going to be important. I, I, I'm not sure about what kind of – I think that was a triple negative breast cancer that was in that trial, in that little study. And so – by parallel to bladder cancer, that would be a basal tumor. Um, so, 
you know, I'm not sure that you're going to see that for every tumor type. So, for example, if it's a luminal tumor, um, we know that those patients, you know, probably can just go to cystectomy and, and not need it. Uh, we know the basals also respond to chemo. So I think, you know, knowing more about the tumor biology, knowing about the immunotherapy, luckily those trials are underway. And, you know, the good thing about a new adjuvant trial is you'll know pretty soon, you know, who's responding and what, you know, what, what the, what's the pathologic response. Okay, great. Next slide, Teek. All right, Josh, will this novel therapy replace BCG? Yeah, I think it's a pretty high burden for us to ask about. I mean, obviously there, there's a reason why BCG has been around for 40 years, and, you know, it has a, you know, a, I know you, you've studied this as well in, in your lab, but the response to BCG, there's a reason why it works for bladder cancer, and the reason there's a reason why it started originally in melanoma, and it's a very strong activator of an immune response. Now, if you look at what we know about the response to tumor, and this slide sort of goes back to looking at that circle of neoantigens and the immune response, we're learning more and more about what molecules are involved in that. I think if you look at what activates the immune response, which is shown here in green, Many of these are activated by BCG. And so when you look at, you know, therapies, and so this slide shows our current therapies that we have at each time point. Once again, if you look at all of these and, and what's FDA approved, and especially uh, as urologists when we look at the toxicity of all of these therapies, it's really hard to meet both, both the stimulating activity of BCG as well as the very well how well it's tolerated. So, you know, I'd love it if we said that we had a better therapy that's intravesical with minimal side effects and has a better immune response. But, you know, once again, there's a reason why that's been around for a long time. And I could see, you know, I, I would go the other way. You know, for people who have metastatic disease with an intact bladder in, in place, I could see BCG potentially being combined with systemic therapy in those patients in order to prime with BCG and then have an immune response after that. So I don't think it's going away. I think that, you know, if we could come up with something that's, once again, well-tolerated, that's just as, just as active, uh, I'd love to see it. But I think for a while it's going to be here. What are your thoughts, Rob? Do you think, do you think the BCG is... is uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, no, I, I think a couple of challenges. Um, one is BCG works pretty well. I mean, you know, if you look at all the drugs that urologists work with, that have undergone phase three testing, BCG is up there in one of the most effective. Um, if you look at look at Kaplan-Meier curves and BCG maintenance therapy, there's not a lot of drugs that we give that have curves that split like that. Um, and so it's a it's a high bar to try to uh, surpass. So um, now that said, we're all kind of vexed by the. BCG unresponsive population, and that's a population I think that all of us really want to change. And so, I think that that we're going to focus most of our energy in that area, and, and and through that we'll be able to kind of improve BCG therapy for the primary setting. But I don't see BCG going away. It, it, you know, we're we're looking at you know adding BCG to some of these systemic trials because it's such it's such a good adjuvant. So. But but I would also, you know, one one thing that worries me a little bit, and I know that you've probably, you've interacted a lot with the FDA in, 
trying to come up with better primary therapies for patients that are intermediate and high risk in the primary setting. And uh, that's challenging. And I think to go head-to-head -head with BCG, you're first going to ha probably have to see a response in the BCG refractory population. Uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there, but I'm not sure those disease states are the same. I, I agree. Um, you're, you're right on, and, and it may be apples and oranges. Another approach, which is not caught on in the U.S., but is using a marker lesion study where you remove every, all the tumors except one and then treat with the agent that you're interested in. Um, it's more popular in Europe, um, but that may be some, some kind of outside-the-box type of thinking that we may need to do to move the field a little faster. I know you've looked into the role of priming, and that's your trial through SWOG 1602, but has, has there been any data that people who have uh, vaccination to BCG have any difference in response to systemic immunotherapy? So th there's data, in fact, the data, part of the data that actually uh, promoted Prime was that a, a European data set from Switzerland, um, because in Europe, people were vaccinated as, as a ch in childhood. And so what they did was they looked at patients that uh, had undergone BCG treatment for bladder cancer, and they had data on their pretreatment PPD response. So what, what this is is before they got BCG, how good was their immune system? How specific was it to BCG? And they showed a, a, a significant difference in response to those that had had BCG treatment versus those that had not, or sorry, versus those that had a positive PPD versus a negative had a pretty significant difference in response to BCG. That's along the lines of what you're getting at. Um, as far as to other immune therapies, um, you could bet that there is probably, uh, if your immune system works well, you're going to respond to immune therapy better. Um, and that's kind of been shown as with aging research and, and effects of other comorbidities on the immune response. So I think that that's a long, in support of that. Okay, at this point, uh, I would like to um, thank everyone for joining, and uh, especially thank you to Dr. Meeks for the, uh, the presentation. Uh, I want to welcome everybody to join us for our complimentary AUA Bladder Cancer Educational Series. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and have a good night.